And so we went there and had a couple of pints and I was like, Hey, what are you going to do about your second year project? And he's like, I don't know. What are you doing? I'm like, I don't know. You know, what about like a chain of burrito restaurants or something? You're a Mexican joint or something. And he's like, restaurants are the worst idea in the world. Nobody should launch a restaurant. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Sure. I'll be your advisor. And I just remember being, it was such a grueling thing just to get to the starting line, right? Uh, I, I, two years of just trying to get a store open. And in about 10 minutes opening the door, we had a queue to the, um, to the, uh, to the door at, with about 15 or 20 people in the line. And I was like, I was properly emotional. And I remember, <laughs> you know, Rohit was in the back near the door. He was kind of towards the front, I'm behind the queue. And he's just pointing at me and laughing, you know, and just, just enjoy the whole thing. I saw him about a month ago and he was, he, uh, he reminded me of that, that whole episode. And that's how we got the site, the first site open. Today, I'm speaking with a lovely chap called Brandon Stevens, always made easier because Brandon's already a mate of mine. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. This is all about Brandon talking about him building Tortilla from one site through to 50 plus sites. Um, and it's fascinating. So. We'll uh, we'll get straight into it, and uh, I hope you really enjoy it. How's life treating you? Good. A lot going on. Um, quite a bit in the tortilla world, which is exciting. And um, and then just continue. Don't tell me yet. What's that? <laughs> Don't tell me yet. We need to get to that. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll I'll tell you about that later. Um. Can't say too much, but you know we can we can talk about that. We can tease a little bit out. Just a lot of property related big box stuff that we're exploring, um, that I'm exploring. So that's that's keeping me very busy. That's been keeping me busy for a while. And then just a couple of other boards which are interesting. So yeah, staying busy. Little daughter, she's fun. So how yeah. old? She's going to be four shortly. Oh, that's just brilliant, isn't it? On age. I've, mine's 13 now, mate. And don't get me wrong, she's still ace. But the four-year-old Lucinda was just like ace. <laughs> <laughs> Everything that they do just blows you away, doesn't it? Yeah. Every day she wakes up a little smarter. It's so crazy. That's great. Has she gone past you yet? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, there's just things. Oh, yeah. She, you know, the other day she was like, no, daddy, that's not how we're doing Legos. No, daddy, that's not right. This is how you do it. Oh, okay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> that's my bad. <laughs> <laughs> that's my job, then. Yeah. Right. And, and it just, I don't, know, I don't know about you, but with Luce, every single day that you think you can't love her anymore you just do yeah and yeah. and it's uh, you don't realize just how bloody selfish you were before you have a kid because <laughs> <laughs> suddenly you somebody's life genuinely matters more than yours yeah now she's she's uh she's now in football like she, she's actually been in football practice in about an hour and a half and just uh just watching her run around and just learn all this stuff you know it's just amazing right it's just that's really good for her as well mate not just from physical point of view, but that team yeah, side, team, side of things. Uh, she's still loose. Was a tomboy. Yeah. So so Danny's Danny started off um, as a tomboy, and then she she met a kind of best friend, right? I mean, best friends of two or something like that, who was much more girly. And now it's like all about pink and everything. But at the same time, she's just wildly competitive, and you know, she's playing these playing football. 
and someone scores on the other team or anybody scores and she's she's pissed off because it's like she's entitled to score it should only be her scoring you know you're like okay let's let's talk about this a bit you know <laughs> how are you how's everything going uh yeah really good mate um, i'm enjoying having these chats it's yeah uh, yeah it's good fun just uh you're amazing what you learn about people that, yeah. and and getting under getting under the skin of understanding you know why people got into what they did and sometimes falling into things and um well, we can come on to that but uh work-wise yeah pretty good it's been turbulent hasn't it what's that it's been it's been crazy it's been crazy Shots. i mean the last time we chatted we were talking about you know um all the stuff with the nhs tracking and everything and how they how much they messed that up and goodness it's just been a I while. I didn't get any better, did it? No, but we're I, hopefully we're coming out of it. Well, you know, fingers crossed, right? Yeah, well, we've got to start living, haven't we? So uh, you can't just you can't just write off three, four, five years of people's lives. They've got to. I think uh, I all I can tell you, I, you know, you look at the footfall reports and we see the um, the changing in behaviour just through the guest Wi-Fi, and and there's a massive massive change, mate. It's. Uh, uh, people are people are out and about and moving around and doing an awful, awful lot more than they were even two weeks ago. So, so what percentage change. are we at now? What what where are we versus kind of twenty nineteen that you've seen? I guess it depends, depends on where you look. Right? Yeah, and central London's still pretty down, um, but it's the local conurbations. You know, so the local areas are much much better now. They're almost approaching normality, and sometimes mm-hmm. beyond normality. I think you know you're still seeing. 60 70% of footfall in London and certain areas, you know, sort of the banking districts and stuff like that, it's still pretty quiet. Yeah. Um, what percentage is like the city? What's what does that look like now? Well, so on the whole, if you if you just took it as a whole, it might be 70% of where it was. But then if you extract out the villages and take everything outside the center of London, which is much higher, London center's still much, much lower. I'll send you something over. Yeah, that'd be good. You can look but at it, but I mean, like financial district. Where where is that at? Don't know. Do you want me to find out for you then? No, no, it's okay. Just curious, you know. Pure I curious. don't mind. It's not. It won't be a challenge. We've got a cracking data analyst now. Oh, cool. Um, okay. He's miles smarter than I am. And is Mbiba being supportive of everything? Yeah, they're fabulous, mate. Great. Um, from start to finish, I've uh, I couldn't fault them throughout the whole of the the lockdowns. They've backed my decisions. Everything that we wanted to do. And that's that's been, you know, they were a lifesaver in terms of because uh, uh, I guess it probably they probably had bigger fires burning if I'm honest because mm-hmm. you know we're the only tech play in their investment portfolio. Everybody else is an operator. And I think the right. operators that's in their blood and they know it. Whereas I think they probably decided that the best play for us was to trust us. Because we know what we're doing in tech, and uh, between us, between us and the board, the non-execs have been brilliant as well, and we've navigated our way through. I think we will we'll come back stronger eventually. Uh, it'll take a while, mate, but we're nearly there. I appreciate you asking. Okay. Tell me about you. We're already doing it, mate. <laughs> I don't. I don't do formal. I'll. I'll do it. I'll do a formal introduction at the end when you've gone. Oh right. Okay. Um, what, what? 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 should we? What do you want to talk about? Um, <laughs> It, well, you know what? I'll give you a tiny bit of structure, but I'm not not very good at structure, as you know, and I don't think you are either, based on our conversations in the past. So, <laughs> but, but but it'd be good to just, I guess, get a feel for 
how it how, where you sort of cracked off where did you where did you start from where did this all begin yeah okay. um yeah so i obviously i'm from the states and specifically from california specifically from san francisco which brands itself as the burrito capital of the world and so grew up eating just a colossal amount of mexican food i mean mexican food is by far my favorite cuisine i love burritos i love tacos and i've kind of always had that in my i guess in my blood so to speak um, you know, growing up, having burritos at lunch, breakfast burritos, burritos at two o'clock in the morning with all my friends, you know, it's just kind of part of um, life. And so when I moved over uh, to get my business school degree, I, I at a certain point, I, I'd gone to all the Mexican restaurants in London at the time. So I went to Chiquitos and there's a place called Arizona and just all these places. And it was just incredibly underwhelmed and, and had no notion of starting a business or anything like that. It was just you know, my, my wife and I were on a mission, go check out every Mexican place in London. And there were 14. Uh, so I, I knew every single one of them. Okay. And, and then I, as part of, um, in the middle of the summer between first year and second year of business school, um, we were, they let us know that we had to do a, a second year thesis was what it was called. And so it could be a project uh, as a consulting project where you go work at a, a firm or you could do a business plan. And one of the key things when I went to business school is uh, I wanted to focus on entrepreneurship uh, as a kind of a kind of major or specialized in your business school program. So I focused on that. And um, and I, I really wanted to come out of there with a business plan for a, for a, uh, a business. I mean, that was kind of my big, that was my hope. I mean, is how many times you have an opportunity to just kind of, where you have some free time to explore different opportunities. And so I was looking at different things like, I was looking, I just come from a banking gig at Bank of America where I was focused on uh, bill payments and things like that, which really, there's a nice utility to them, um, you know, where you get a proactive message that says you've received this bill, it goes into your banking, you know, click on it. Do you want to pay it? Yes. Cool. Really easy. No paperwork. And so I was, I was fascinated with that. But I was also really fascinated with just Mexican food and restaurants. I didn't know anything about restaurants, but hey, why not give it a go? And so I was, I was actually walking down the street um, near Baker Street, and I ran into a, a buddy of mine uh, named Deepak. And Deepak was from New York, uh, total New Yorker. And like, hey, how you doing? Haven't seen you in a while. Dude, let's go get a beer. And, and there's a there's a place called the Volunteer Pub. Um, and so we went there and had a couple pints. And I was like, hey, what are you going to do about your second year project? And he's like, I don't know. What are you doing? I'm like, I don't know. You know, what about like a chain of burrito restaurants or something, you're a Mexican joint or something. He's like, ah, oh, that sounds cool. And you know, we had a whole bunch of pints and just thought, all right, whatever. And then the next, um, when we got back to school, it was like, hey, maybe we should actually pursue this. And so another buddy of ours, Raja, who I'm still very um, close to, actually, in fact, we're, I'm seeing him next uh, Tuesday. He had heard that we were talking about this through the grapevine and he was like, I wanna get involved. Absolutely, great idea. And so then we approached a guy named uh, John Bates, Professor Bates, who was the, I, I guess he, was, he ran the entrepreneurship department, still in touch with him, mentor, unbelievable guy, very sharp. And you know, went to him, hey, would you, would you be our advisor on this thesis that we got it right? And he's like, restaurants are the worst idea in the world. Nobody should launch a restaurant. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Sure, I'll be your advisor. And so we started <laughs> this process of, um, coming up with this business plan. And Deepak liked to cheerlead, but didn't really want to do too much with it. He's just kind of, you know, he's just like tagging along, really. 
Raja was really good at um, spreadsheets. I, I wasn't as experienced with financial modeling at the time. And so he kind of did the, the model. And I just got really obsessed with it. I mean, because second year at business school, you're not working that that hard. Uh, you know, they really try to weed you out the first semester, the first year. But after that, you can you can kind of coast. And so there's there's opportunities to pursue other things, and 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 um, and this is what I wanted to pursue. So I got way into it, and you know, spoke with a number of people and looking at um, uh, property mapping and gross margins and just all this familiarizing myself with this whole space, which I knew nothing about. And as I got to the end of the curriculum, um, we had put it into a couple of business school con- uh, or business plan contests. And one, there was 50 business plans. We came in fourth, thought that was pretty good, given that the other ones were kind of tech related. And some of my friends started coming up to me and saying, you know, if you take this forward, I'll put some money. I was like, really? You're wow. And that was kind of a real eye opener. Like you will actually part with money and, and provide it to this business to fund <laughs> something. That's incredible. You're trusting me. I was, and it was really, I was like, you know, I'd never started a business. I'd been in, a, 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 I'd been in five startups by that point. So I, I knew the startup world, but I'd never raised funds. I didn't know anything about investment agreements or articles of association or anything. And so another buddy of mine, uh, Matt Zubler, put me in touch with this lawyer who was an American guy. Um, and he was ranked one of the top 100 lawyers in the world. He was a private equity lawyer. And he sat down with me. Uh, I remember this very clearly because um, he hadn't slept the entire night and still spent the time. His name is David Patrick Ike. Uh, David Ike, obviously, everybody knows the name David Ike. And so whenever I say he's David Ike, everybody's like, what? Well, the Messiah. <laughs> but this guy is just incredible. And he took me through drag rights and, and, um, and anti-dilution rights and uh, all that stuff. And I then hired in a, a firm to kind of uh, to put together uh, docs and we and um, a friend of mine, Nadine from business school, really got behind it. Her, her dad put in, uh, I think, 50K at the time, which is like a mountain of money. Yeah. Uh, and when was we, this? We hired in a Mex- What's that? When was this? This is now this is 2000. This is just after graduating in 2005. And so by the beginning of 2006, we, we had this, this, these uh, recipes from this amazing chef, Mexican chef from Mexican culinary institute in Mexico City. And I'd raised about 400,000 pounds. And I was kind of ready to, you know, I was ready to go. And, I, and we had a property agent appointed and we were just looking for a property. And I, at the time, though, I, I had graduated, and I, then this is what I was kind of doing full time. And we had a mountain of um, uh, student debt and everything. So I was taking a bit of odd jobs here and there, doing consulting stuff, kind of leveraging my background in, in digital and e-commerce and so forth. And then at a certain point, I got a job. Um, I, I, I'd been, I got asked to um, get involved consulting for Arcadia Group and in, in, in consulting their e-commerce division. And eventually that kind of turned into, can you kind of run this as an kind of outsourced resource? So I, was, I ended up running that division and, and growing it. Remember, we, we grew at about 88% for about 14 months. And this whole time, I'm, I'm kind of doing that while also looking for a first site. And as, I, as I'm sure you know, getting a first site with no covenant and no corporate background with a guy who's talking about a product that no one's ever heard of called burritos with a name called tortilla, or as they pronounce it, tortilla. Um, you know, it was, it, was, it was hard going. And we we almost got a deal over the line with Ed's Easy Diner at the time. They had a site on Great Windmill, or Win, yeah, Great Windmill Street, I think it's called, 
um, which is just down by uh, Leicester Square. And so it went way down the path. There was all kinds of challenges because there was a redevelopment. There was going to be scaffolding and all these things. And that went on for about eight months before it finally collapsed because they had another site that was shutting down. They, they didn't want to have two shut down at the same time. And, and so they pulled the deal. And it was absolutely heartbreaking. And that same afternoon, we had a meeting with a guy named Jonathan Doughty, not Downey, but Doughty, who is, um, he's, and Jonathan's still very active in the space. He's, he's now at ECE, uh, which is a German business, uh, largest property developers in, in Germany, I, I believe, or at least have the most shopping centers in Germany. And at the point, he, at that time, he had started a, comp- a company called CoverPoint. And I remember sitting, sitting down with him and we had just lost this. I was almost in tears. He's like, it's okay, my boy, we're going to get back on it. We'll go get some sites. This is a great business. And so he joined the board and it was me, Nadine and Jonathan, you know, kind of moving forward. And eventually, and I, I then got introduced to a guy named Morris Abudi and Morris um, had, uh, had come across this site in Islington that nobody was advertised, that was not being advertised. And when I inspected, I then realized why, because it was a legal uh, workers um, selling alcohol illegally without a license, not paying VAT. Uh, when we finally brought the extraction down, uh, uh, hood down, there was a dead pigeon inside. I mean, it was a real mess, this unit. And so it just went under the radar. And we, we managed to, long story, but we managed to secure it for 60, 60K. At the time, I was also looking at what ended up being the Chilango site and passed on that because the premium was high. Um, and I visited on an off day and I, I was like, oh, this is a way better site. You know, the, this Islington High Street site instead of the Upper Street site. And I didn't realize, but actually it turns out the Upper Street site was much better. And um, the Chilango guys ended up taking that and we ended up taking uh, the Islington High Street site and we launched within a month of each other. And so I had um, long, another long story, my, my father had passed away right around that time, which is very heartbreaking. And I then resigned from, um, from this gig that was going on with Arcadia. And I went full-time into launching it. So that's how I finally got Islington open on October 31st, uh, 2007. So two years after, after I graduated from, from business school. And I remember, and, and, and so along that path, this is another kind of weaving in some other folks who you'll know. Don Lake, who was running Cantina at the time, had graduated from London Business School. And Rohit Chu from Rodi Chai, at the time he was at Cinnamon Club. Was, had also graduated from the same business school. And we were the only three people in hospitality that had graduated from this business school. So those guys are like grilling me and giving me a hard time. And then they're like, I'm in for 15 grand, you know? And so they, they came on board and, we, and they, we had the kind of opening party. And then we opened the next day, late, 1 p.m., uh, didn't have enough food, et cetera, et cetera. And I just remember being, it was such a grueling thing just to get to the starting line, right? Uh, I, I, two years of just trying to get a store open and in about 10 minutes of opening the door, we had a queue to the, um, to the, uh, to the door at, with about 15 or 20 people in the line. And I was like, I was properly emotional. And I remember, <laughs> you know, Rohit was in the back n- near the door. He was kind of towards the front. I'm behind the queue. And he's just pointing at me and laughing, you know, and just, just enjoying the whole thing. I saw him about a month ago and he, was, he, uh, he reminded me of that, that whole episode. And that's how we got the site, the first site open. Quick question. Right at the start of that, you said you went to business school to do entrepreneurship. What, why did you, I mean, I fell into it. So what, how did you know at at that age that that's what you wanted to do? 
Because I had grown up in, in Silicon Valley. I mean, I grew up where yeah. my mom was an entrepreneur. My dad was an entrepreneur. I went to school with all the sons and daughters of the venture capitalists and other entrepreneurs. And if you grow up in Silicon Valley, like you're going to go into tech. And if you're going into tech, you're probably going into something startup related. You know, startups were just, it was all about startups. It was all about equity. It was all about that, that, that side of things. And so, and, and I just love that idea. I love the idea of building yeah. things. Um, it was like, give me a Lego set. I want to build it, you know? Um, and, and, and so I, I guess what was interesting is I, I always knew I wanted to do startup related stuff. And also my dad being an entrepreneur, like I just wanted to follow my dad's footsteps. He got an electrical engineering degree. I got an electrical engineering degree. He got an MBA, I got an MBA. Um, but the way that that startup world works in Silicon Valley is if you want to do startups, you're going into tech. Like that's, you're not, there isn't really other yeah. idea of going into, I don't know, printing or, or food or it's just not done. You know, it's, you're going into tech. And so I, I, I kind of, I think I went into tech because of that. And, and I loved technology and I loved the idea of being at the cutting edge of stuff and, and moving along kind of, you know, human knowledge. I mean, if you're at the cutting edge and you're doing something that no one's ever done before, that is exciting. Yeah. But I, I'm not a, I'm not a tech obsessive as much as you know some of the tech obsessives are that are in Silicon Valley that are coming from around the world because that's that is that hub, and so I realized you know w w one of the big learnings I've had over the last couple of years is I love startups, but I don't necessarily love tech, right? But yeah. I do like bars and pubs and restaurants and consumer experiences and making people feel good, you know, and having that kind of relate, be able to look at people you know, eating a burrito and talking about like, oh, this is great. Like that's really rewarding. And I take a lot of, um, that just really gets you up in the morning. Whereas doing middleware just isn't that exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? I probably could have done a lot better sticking with tech, but I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much because, you know, hospitality is just, it's just the best industry in the world. Just so much fun. By a mile. Just people. Else, just the best, you know, Hospitality is full of hospitable people, you know, yeah. and tech is quite frankly full of you know, <laughs> guys that really like to read about the latest virus technology, you know. <laughs> shall, I, uh, shall I go get a knife out of the kitchen roll? <laughs> I'm talking to the right guy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I'm not into tech either. Um, I, I like solving problems, mate. So yeah, um, exactly. thankfully, I've got people who are, you know, miles smarter than I'll ever be. So uh, I don't, I don't, luckily I don't have to be good at tech. I don't, I don't, I don't pretend to be great at tech either. That's, I guess that's the thing. Uh, you, gotta, you gotta be, I mean, to succeed, it's so clear, but you know, to succeed on in these things, you just have to be completely and totally obsessed beyond belief. Absolutely. Uh, with, you know, never say die, never give up, no surrender. And if you're doing something that you're not enjoying on a day to day basis, you find yourself, you know, far from the starting point, far from the end point, and what is motivating you, it's gotta be whatever you're literally doing that day. And it's just tough to wake up and, you know, be dealing with kind of product management requirements and things like that. And things you can't quite, you know, necessarily see. I mean, I came from a consumer background and, 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 and did, my main kind of background was product management where you'd have a product that you could see, it's a desktop application or whatever it happens to be. And that, that feels good. You know, you can kind of, or I was working for Webvan. Webvan was the kind of the Ocado of the U.S., um, also called the, the water world of the internet because it was such a spectacular disaster. Um, 
but you know, at least you kind of people knew about it, and it's kind of this brand recognition. It's like, oh yeah, I really love Webvan. You kind of I feel good about that. Um, but it's not like having something where people understand, you know, a tortilla or a Leon or a Nitsu or a Wasabi, and that brand recognition and and and, and the fact that it's creating this no. consumer experience that we can relate to. Technology is an enabler. Its job is to make things better, faster, cheaper, easier. It's yeah. not. It's not. It's designed to solve a problem. Yeah, and that was the challenge with, I think, Silicon Valley is it ends up getting so in its own head. You know, you're, you're kind of creating tech for tech's sake instead, yeah. of, instead of solving real world uh, problems. That's right. And I also just kind of realized with, with hospitality, it felt like one of those things of technology, can, the tech world can feel very loaded at a certain point. You know, it's VCs that are investing in other VCs businesses and they're kind of, you know, backing each other in order to prop up their prices. It's who knows a particular person it's who's who's found a particular loophole in the Facebook uh, targeting algorithms. You know, whereas if you're doing hospitality, if you find a good restaurant location and you work hard and you're diligent and you really give it your all, it's not going to be worth a billion pounds. It's not going to be the next Facebook, but you can do OK financially and, and, and you can enjoy the the path and that's ultimately you know what i wanted to do and you're making people happy you're making people happy you know what's better than you know somebody walks into your restaurant your job's to make them happier when they leave yeah i mean when people ask you like hey so you know what do you do and it's like well i started a burrito chain called tortilla and they're like oh i go to this one and and you have that you know they they tell you about oh i love the guacamole that just feels good you know and absolutely it does Maybe it's appealing to some insecurity that we have or something, but there's something rewarding about it. And I've never met an, an entrepreneur who's not insecure, mate. <laughs> well, that's probably what drives us, right? I mean, I mean, ultimately, yeah. you're, you know, for me, it's like, just want to impress myself, right? You want to challenge yourself and you want to, you're your own worst critic. And, and um, I think you're always chasing that thing of like, <laughs> can I feel good about this? Because yeah. I, until I, we got to about 12 stores, I was convinced we were going to fail. I was certain, <laughs> you know, that there was just no no way we could succeed. How uh, long did it take from one to twelve? So in twenty in two thousand eight, we launched the second one, which is Bankside, which massive colossal disaster of a project, uh, overspent and everything. Never built, never build a mezzanine was my my lesson from that. But with that second site at Bankside, you know, we were then in a corporate environment. And that allowed us to secure the Canary Wharf site because they saw that we were, you know, in, in a, not just a high street site, but an actual development. And that was really, I think for us, the one that um, put us on the, on the map. Um, a month later, we launched a marketplace, um, you know, doing not much a month later Mark marketplace uh, near Oxford Circus. Yeah, but a month later. So you, you, you spent yeah. two years finding the first site and then you battered them out after, every month. Yeah, well, not quite. I mean, it was it was kind of it, they just kind of lined up two in a two in um, in a month, uh, and then I just collapsed in a heap and went to Sydney, Australia for for the for the <laughs> for the Christmas holidays and everything. But uh, but that wasn't you know Canary Wharf kind of out the gate was like wow I we didn't think that we could do yeah. those kind of sales and and then uh, Oxford Circus Marketplace was like oh gosh this could be a problem. But you know that's that's since um, tripled in its weekly sales, so it, it you know it does well. But then it took um, yeah. Then we started getting some more sites over time. Um, How are you picking the sites, mate? Yeah, we've never. You know what? To this day, we've got about fifty sites or so. So we've we've never shut down a site, which is 
kind of amazing. Um, you know, we've been very conservative. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, and if you think about some of the, you know, where the CVAs come in and where other um, operators have, have faltered a bit, you know, it's because of site selection. Now, I think the more, more recently, it's, that's not even site selection. I mean, people that just happen to have a city-focused approach have just been, you know, punished unnecessarily because of that strategy. Um, we took one site in the city, Leadenhall Market, and just realized that our model, uh, you know, if you're not doing takeaway on a shelf and you're trying to actually do an assembly line and you're only operating it for essentially 10 hours a week, it's very tough to make that work. And so we stayed away from the city after that site. And we focused more on going into Wimbledon and Wimbledon kind of unlocked going into Richmond, Richmond unlocked Putney um, and Kingston. And so having these kind of slightly more residential locations that traded all day, seven days yeah. a week, all day, that really worked out well for us. But yeah, we, so we, we, we got up to, I guess in two, 2011, we had six sites. And at that point I raised 435,000, then around a 380, 280, 1.1 million. I was, I was exhausted from raising money and just such a distraction. And so I, I then, um, what's that? But good at it. Yeah. I, I, well, I guess so. I mean, if you, depending, you can raise any amount of money at a low enough valuation. So, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you're fighting your dilution. It's like, how quickly do we want to yeah. do this? How much do you want to dilute and, and make it easy on yourself? And so we ended up, uh, having a chat with, I guess I probably shouldn't name some of the names, but having some chats with some of the private equity firms that you would probably know. Um, I think for the, for the podcast rating, you should name them. <laughs> well, one sounds like Piper and one sounds like risk capital and <laughs> one sounds like cool And we, we the, the Piper guys were absolutely incredible um, in, you know, while, while they didn't end up doing the deal with us, they, 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 the valuation was a little bit lower them as people and, and, and actually helping me steer through uh, the eventual deal that I did do was really kind of really endeared me to them. Um, just top notch people. And we ended up doing the deal with Quillvest. That took a very long time to get over the line uh, for a range of reasons I definitely can't go into, but uh, that took 400 days and a thousand emails. It were, were in my Quillvest folder by the time that deal was done. And so we got that those funds in. Um, that was a 3.5 million pound raise in um, in December 2011. And at that point, I was pretty exhausted. But we moved forward, got it up to 15 sites. And at that point in 2013, I then was really burnt out. I was really like on on fumes yeah. um, because we were you know we were battling against Benito's Hat, Barbarito, Chilango. I mean, it was it was the Burrito Wars and it very much felt like whoever got ahead, you know, you get ahead in this game and you have a stronger covenant and you seem to be the, the winners. They're the ones that are going to get the, the better sites. And the more, the more great sites that you get, the more that the more great sites that come and the more you're able to bring on a team to support your gross margins improve because you have uh, purchasing power and just everything you get in the lead. And it's, 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 it's hard. You you got to make missteps in order to um, have that all kind of crash around you. And so, you know, we managed to avoid those missteps with the property side. And um, and by 2013, I actually then realized, okay, it, it probably isn't going to fail. I'm really exhausted. Um, I had worked 500 straight days at one point. I, I remember thinking, 
And, wow. uh, and, and I persuaded the board, like, I need to hire in somebody to, to take over. I, I need to pass the baton. Luck, so I, I hired a, a, a wonderful recruiter named Holly Addison. Um, and she, Holly. she is great. In fact, we're in conversation with Holly about some other stuff now. And Holly then introduced me to Richard Morris, um, very first person that I met in the process. Richard, I hit it off. He just seemed like a great guy. Eventually, so he he had a very funny, we, we, we basically pretended that he was um, like a health and safety inspector. So he went into the restaurants and met and was toured around by the area managers and met the head of operations and all these different guys. And then showed up a couple months later as, you know, he, he's, a, he's a new MD. Um, so I took my team out. I actually took my team to the volunteer pub that I had, um, that the whole concept had come from and kind of told them, you know, I, I needed to, I needed to step down and uh, I, got, I got booed. They, so I, they, they, they literally just booed me. And then they, but they were understanding, the board was understanding. Uh, Richard came in, we had a three month handover. It was one of the happiest times I can, re- you know, I can remember because I, I finally had a business partner, you know, and somebody to bounce these ideas off and somebody picking up some of the things that were tricky. And at that point, I think it was May 2014, I, you know, I, I, I stepped aside. I found my big kind of learning is, you know, when you're starting these businesses and people are joining you, they're not joining because you're going to look, the business is going to look good on their CV. No one knows this business. And they're not joining because of the salary because you can't pay them very much because, you know, you don't have much of a business. It's, it's, it, you can't pay above the odds. And so you're, you're, you're really, you're bringing them on and they're joining because you're going to treat them well and you're going to treat them fairly and you're going to make it a family and you're going to make it fun. But it also means you can't really be too hard on them. You gotta, you know, you gotta be quite tempered with this. It's not a command and control type of thing. It's, it's, you're on a ship and you're, you know, it's, it's a family. And there comes a point at which you need to transition from doing that. A, you need to transition away from being an individual contributor to actually managing a team, but also you need to move away from just kind of lots of hugs and, and, and lots of pats on the back to, you know, a little bit of hard, hard muscle and a little bit of, come on, you know, you got to be tough here. Um, and that was tough for me because of, you know, this, the close relationship I had with my team and um, the general managers and everybody. I mean, I, 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 I struggled to be tough on people. <laughs> so when Richard, I, I, I hear you, mate. He had no problem being tough with people. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and to this day, you know, we, we just have a great working relationship and a lot of fun together. And um, what's, what's wild about being 2021 now is, you know, I, it was a seven year period that I was uh, getting this business up and running until I, um, until he came in and it's been seven years since. So, We've we've uh, we've both done our time equally, <laughs> is what I tell him. Has he had enough? <laughs> <laughs> he's still he's still going. He you know it, it hasn't been uh, as grueling I'd say uh, as you know getting it off the ground right. Do, but do you think he would agree? I think he would agree. Yeah, I think I you know, you know having a team around you and everything. It's it's not as because Richard knows what it's like to to be there at the beginning. I mean he he I think he joined Lock Fine at number two. He's he's been part of that that those hard yards. He also doesn't. There's nothing quite. There's nothing like it, is there? It's uh, even though it's really, really tough. I, I mean, you know, I'm speaking for myself, but I'd still do it again. You feel I think if, I, if someone rewound me, I'd still do it again, even though it's absolutely destroyed me at times. Yeah, I mean, I always liken it to climbing a mountain. Like, why would you climb a mountain? What is the point? 
I mean, there's a, there's a peak and you're like, well, I just want to be on the peak of that mountain. It's like, well, there's nothing actually that you're going to, not going to, no one's going to pay you. Or, I mean, you're just doing it because there's a challenge and you want to do it. And I th- you pretty much want to prove it to yourself that you can do that. Right. And I think for me also, like I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I wanted to be successful uh, and I wanted to probably follow my dad's footsteps and him proud. And, you know, um, I think being able to then you get to a certain point, you're like, Oh, you know, I, I guess I can say that I successfully started a company that feels, that feels good. That's something you can kind of tell your grandchildren and be like, you know, I did, I, I did what I set out to do, which, which, uh, which feels good. It's, it's really cool then when your daughter starts talking about it. So I've taken my daughter to Tortilla a number of times and she doesn't like it at all. <laughs> I'm hoping that as the years go by, she'll, she'll start to, she'll start to kind of get it. But she, you know, she's just like the spicy foods a bit too much and the guacamole is really mushy and it's, it's all just not quite right for a four-year-old. But, uh, <laughs> so I tell her, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's one of the you know restaurants for that daddy started. And she's, she doesn't really care. It's just like, where's the scooter? Yeah, Yeah, mate. It it changes over time. Yeah, she'll get more and more intrigued by it. And also, if if Lucy's anything to go by, my daughter, mate, then they start off with no interest in spice, and now my daughter's pretty good with stuff like that. She likes a bit of likes a bit of a kick. Um, uh, and I, I reckon I've, she's not had a tortilla because you haven't got one around where I live, but um, we'll work on I think she'd be all right with it. Say again. Yeah, my, my, my daughter's starting to get into some spicy stuff where I, I'll taste it. I'm like, I, this is a little spicy. She's like, no, it's fine. And she's she can handle it, which, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool. <laughs> just not yours. Yeah, just not my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, 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 so, we'll make it work. so what's what's the worst thing that's ever happened? In 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 work, not things like obviously your dad. Oh gosh, what's the worst thing? What's the lowest ebb? Uh, well, I think the lowest, I mean, I've had so many safes stolen. It's just unbelievable. I mean, and you know, funny stuff where you kind of look, you're watching the CCTV and you're like, are they going to be able to lift that? Oh, wow. They lifted that. That's got to hand it to you. Well done. You know, that's, that's, that's some crazy stuff. And sometimes, you know, there was this one, just as a quick tangent, because it's kind of funny. So there was in our Islington store, a guy, um, well, we walked into the store and the door was locked and there was a hole on the side of the wall and uh, there was green bins that were gone and the, and someone had robbed the uh, place. And there was a, uh, there was a bottle of appetizer sitting on a counter and it was like, Sherlock Holmes mode. I mean, like what, what, what's happened here? What, what has gone on? Like, how did he get the safe? Like he couldn't have gotten the safe through that hole. The hole is like, it's like this big. And so then we pieced it all together. The guy had come around the back. He had gone upstairs, broken in through a window, come down. Um, there was a little tiny partition. He just kind of like got through that thing, went in. He then um, he then managed to take the safe, put it into the green willy bin, opened the front door, took it around the back, came back, locked the door, went out the back through that he had come through, and then left with the green wheelie bin and the and and the and the safe in the wheelie bin with a whole like seventeen bags of tortilla chips on top of it to hide it just in case he got caught. But he had this bottle of appetizer. They DNA screened it, and he got caught because he had had the appetizer. Are you kidding? 
crazy. But I don't, I, think- know if it, I don't know if it just says something about me, but I'm gutted. I, 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 I wish he'd not left the bottle of advertiser after going I mean, to that yeah, level of effort. Well, thief, I suppose, right? I mean, there's a lot of that kind of stuff where you feel very... Um, I mean, there's other things that happen kind of internally where you know people would steal from you and you, that feels very demoralizing. But I think the fundraising, the last fundraising round was probably... That was the most challenging because um, I was in the middle between existing investors, new investors, and it's kind of like, where's your, you just feel very alone um, and, and very isolated. I think that was quite, quite tricky to the point where I almost- find that you have like devoid, divided loyalty. Yeah, well, I, I guess everybody is rationally thinking about their own needs. You know, the new guys want to take as much of the equity and don't want to pay as high a valuation. The old guys are like, we should be asking for more and, me trying to kind of you know make sure that I'm uh, I'm not getting overly overly diluted. There was some blocking of uh, the deal going through, and we had to put it all on hold, and then we had to come back to the table. It was just a long process. It was just very grueling. While you know while your competitors are kind of continuing to grow and expand and make noise, and it's um, it, it was it was very tricky. But you know we never had anything that was I think devastating in any way. You know nothing. I, I I don't um, have any. There's no situations where it's like I'm I'm ashamed of this business or I'm ashamed of my, no. uh, you know how I've handled something. It was just grueling, just grueling. Worst mistake? Oh God, where do I begin? I mean, worst mistake. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I I think we had the second site we took was a was a major mistake. Um, we didn't take Westfield, London, and we didn't take a site. Uh, there's a number of property mistakes I think we made, even though we never shut down a site. So I, I probably shouldn't complain. But I think ultimately, um, and I, this, I, I hope this isn't too greedy, but I, I, I probably needed to have thought more through how dilution would work and where I would kind of end up so to make sure that it was just like at the right level. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think we made too many tactical mistakes. You know, we never had anything that was like disastrous. We never had audits go wrong or we never shut down a site. We, you know, we never had to, we never had people steal too much money. We did have someone steal 17,000 pounds. That was kind of crazy. Um, that's a whole nother story. So I don't know. I don't know. But not like no car crashes. No car crash. Well, you've never shut a site, have you? So. Yeah. That speaks volumes, mate. Yeah. I think there, you know, my, my biggest, I think my biggest um, maybe regret was just not being able to, at a certain point, you, you really, this is going to sound very, I don't know, trying to be a hero or something, but you know, I really did try to put people in, ahead of me to the point where my wife was like, enough. Um, and, and that means that you, you just can't always be as hard on some people to make them accountable as they should be. And, and in the end, that makes me the net, you know, and, and constantly like, okay, well, I'll just take care of it. I'll just take care of it. And then you burn yourself out. So I guess biggest regret, you know, burning myself out and, and, and probably not being able to, I mean, honestly, not being uh, as kind of physically able to see th- this whole thing through as I guess I would have liked to, but maybe not. Cause actually when, I mean, bringing Richard in, I was, 
euphoric. It was like, oh, I'm freed up 98% of the time. And I've got this great guy in and, you know, <laughs> this should be great. So I don't know, not, not too many regrets, I, re- I don't think. What about next? What's the plan? I know you don't, Ed, as much as you can tell me, obviously. Yeah. So next with Tortilla. Uh, or next in week, general? Just general. Yeah, just. I mean, next with Tortilla is, you know, we, we have been over the last couple of years looking at international. We've been looking at kiosks. We've been looking at dark kitchens. We've been looking at um, alternative locations. Uh, so for, and, and what we see now is, you know, we now have a franchise agreement in the Middle East with Ethos. We have a deal with SSP. They're very keen for us to replace the Mikasas uh, that they have in the various stations. We wow. just did with Merlin. We're having other conversations uh, about some other stuff that I, I can't talk about, but other um, uh, units on non-high street locations and non-shopping center locations. Kiosks are, are being rolled out. We put them into Canary Wharf and 50% of the transactions started going through day one. You know, we've, we've done a white space report on, on international, so we have a good feel for what that could look like if we decide we want to press the button on that. And so, you know, I think it's, tortilla has been, for, we, we, we count our blessings. Um, and, you know, I, I obviously have a lot of friends who have had to shut down their businesses um, or whose estates have decreased in size by huge percentages. And I think Richard and the team have done an incredible job of steering the ship through what is obviously unparalleled waters, but also we got a little lucky. I mean, as a fast casual business, we benefited from VAT, we benefited from the business rate stuff. We were able to do takeaway and delivery. And so fast cash, and we were located quite, quite heavily, you know, not in, in the city center. Yeah, that's, that's key. And so the nature of being a fast casual business allowed us to do okay through this. But that wasn't any skill. That was just being the right type of business. If we were a pub business, we would have been a harder hit. And if we were a late night bar, you know, we would have been really in trouble. So I, I kind of, I, th- I think we got a little bit lucky through, well, we did get lucky through that. Also, the team has done an incredible job of steering that through and maximizing the opportunity. But where we've come out of this is there's obviously property opportunities and a lot of these bigger um estates are are looking to not do food themselves. They're looking to bring in high street operators. That seems to be a, a big trend. And we're, you know, we're well positioned for that. So the business feels, you know, in in um in really good shape. And I'm Sounds I'm just, like it's in great shape. Yeah. And I'm just incredibly proud of the guys. And you know, Richard, I mean they have been, really been through the ringer as as has everybody. And all I can do is 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 cheerlead and um support and you know try to advise, try to be consigliere, try to open up opportunities, pick up things where they need some help. I'm, I'm helping. There's a little bit of rebranding stuff going on. I'm a bit involved in that. There's some business development stuff. I've been involved in that and, um, and just see where it goes. So, you know, really pleased. And anything else on the horizon outside of Tortilla? Yeah. And then the next thing that I'm working on, uh, which I've been working on now for a while is to try to, is identifying property opportunities that aren't traditional. So um, at big box retail is, is kind of an example. You know, we're all, we, we Tortilla are fighting against Wasabi, Itsu, Leon, Pret, Eat, you name it. Um, you know, Hop, all these guys, a lot of those guys, good friends, Barbarito, you name it, around 
taking 1500 square foot A3 locations, now E locations on in high streets and shopping centers. And quite frankly, you could put in any number of brands in those locations and they do pretty well. But it, this is a property game and it's brutal how much we just beat up on each other trying to get these sites. So what if we took a different, uh, what if we took sites that people aren't looking for for hospitality and we, but we put hospitality and, and more generally consumer experiences into those locations. It turns out with those big box locations, the rents are much more agreeable yeah. and, uh, and you can create by putting together a range of different experiences, a next generation consumer hub that benefits from having cross pollination that has longer dwell times, um, that has a portfolio effect of, of the different experiences. And so that's what I'm really focused on and, uh, and I've been focused on it for a while. What's been wild is through, through all the COVID stuff, those, the, the focus on working away from home, uh, sorry, working away from the office, well-being, experiential, all the stuff that we wanted to put in these locations, that's all accelerated three, three to four years. And property has come available, um, which people don't know what to do with. What, what do they do with these debitums, for instance? And so that's opened up a range of different opportunities, um, which I'm pursuing and which um, others are pursuing and which um, I'm pursuing with them in tandem and so yeah. forth. I mean, basically, everybody kind of focused on big box experiences. You know, we're all kind of getting together like, let's be the pirate ship and take over a site, you know, and let's do something amazing. Um, and that's gained traction. It's It hasn't moved as quickly as we'd hoped in large measure because landlords are just paralyzed because, and I think I can just say this quite openly, because, you know, hospitality is an innovative space, but the property world is as conservative as it comes. It is, it is yeah. the most conservative and they have been swamped and slammed with dealing with existing uh, portfolio management and, and issues. Uh, but I think now people are getting their head around how to handle some of this redevelopment. And, you know, the next, the next uh, phase of consumer experiences is putting these things together. If you believe, if you believe in hub theory, uh, for the high street, which is something you know, I, I kind of subscribe to. That's a case of getting, creating the, the experience and the environment. How and do you create a place that people will go to? How do you create a place that people can go to at seven o'clock in the morning and stay till two o'clock in the morning? And they're starting off with a smoothie and they're getting a workout in. And they can kind of lounge and do some work and meet up with friends and play a game of golf and whatever. And then at two o'clock in the morning, it's a, a, a glass of champagne. Repeat tomorrow. You know, so we, we kind of describe it as the um, the uh, department store of experiences or kind of like a public Soho house. It sounds cracking. And it, but I mean, there's, there's a few moves in that direction anyway, aren't there? And people there's, who are doing it are in, immensely successful on the whole. Multi-use as a concept is definitely heading in that direction. The challenge is that it's it's had to be done because of covenants and yields and all this stuff. It's very tough for these, these property companies to just take a new concept and put it in when you're taking over a business and the yield is way too high. And so valuations are very low, et cetera. So what you end up seeing is people taking, you know, taking stuff, having, let's say, you know, Equinox, which has a gym and then they're going to tack on a hotel or you've got, uh, you know, Brewdog, which is now adding hot desking, or you've got Soho House, which is now adding public areas into it. Everybody's just kind of incrementally tacking on, and it's it's this kind of slow evolution into Hubville, 
but no one's kind of just taken that step where it's like, right, let's just curate a bunch of different experiences. Let's bring together a world-class set of operating partners. We're going to take over a location. We're going to have huge economies of scale. We're going to have great a great situation with the CapEx because it's all going to be in one system. We don't have to have multiple extraction systems and sprinkler systems and partitions and all that stuff. And, um, and just have the next generation of consumer experiences. It seems, you know, it, it, it was... I, me and Dom Cools Artigue, the founder of Street Feast, we've been talking about this for kind of two years now. And back then we talked to people and they're like, what are you talking about? And now everybody's like, well, of course, that's exactly what it's going to be. <laughs> I guess the faster you get there. It becomes the present quite quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, even faster every day. Exactly. And I just think with people's attention spans, uh, that it's not okay now to just have one experience in front of them. They just need to be, you've got to keep up with the internet, which means that they're thinking about five different things at once. So why not put five th- different things in front of them <laughs> and give them that immersive experience? Absolutely. I, so there's a report that came out the other day around what do millennials overspend on? And interestingly, they overspend on big box items because they don't, they don't have any, they can't buy homes because it's just they're priced out of the market. So they're spending on big box. Um, they're spending on experiences and they're spending on uh, convenience. So they overspend versus other um, other demographics on convenience. And that, that's in the form of uh, delivery. Also just having, you know, stuff kind of near, near to you and, and so forth. So, yeah, that's I mean, we're ultimately when I when I kind of look at going back to the tech thing, solving problems. Technology is very good at solving problems. That is, that's the reason, you know, problem solution, value proposition. That's how those decks are always laid out. And we don't really in hospitality solve problems. We, we fill gaps in the market. We say, okay, well, we got French and we got you know, fast casual. So you got, you, got a, you got Mexican fast casual, you got healthy fast casual, you got this fast casual. Okay, well, I got a fast casual. I got, I got casual, fast casual, fine dining, whatever it is. And then I got cuisine, so I got Chinese and Mexican. And blah. Well, I'll just take a, something in that grid and I'll find that kind of thing. Indonesian cuisine is the perfect example. It's suddenly come on and now loads into Indonesian cuisine. But it's not solving a problem. The problem you're solving is, oh, I don't have access to Indonesian cuisine and I really need it. Is that really a problem? Whereas a, a, a proper problem is I need access to health and uh, to well-being. Or I need access, I need, I need convenience. And so that's really what we're focused on. What is the consumer's need? And another consumer need is people want to escape from reality. You know, they need to escape yeah. from the classes of modern day. And that's why probably people drink a lot of beer and they do other illicit things. Uh, and we can do something in a more constructive way by providing with an amazing environment, uh, an immersive environment that allows them to clear their head. Just like going to the cinema, then that would be, you know, that's something that should appeal What's the timeline? As soon as possible. I mean, we have a number of conversations going on, but we've had a lot of conversations going on for a while. So there's we we are down the path on some on things, and we have corporate finance lined up, and we have interested investors, and we have you know um, th- those kind of things going on. But we need to we need to get it over the line. Okay, one more question for me, mate. Um, yeah. Uh oh. <laughs> no, 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 you know what? We're not in difficult question, Bill. We're in let's have a decent conversation. Um, and it, in terms of like people now trying to get into hospitality, if they wanted to do something, yeah, and you were going to give them any advice, where would you start in terms of focus? 
what what would be the first thing that you'd want to teach anybody that was coming to get into our sector that we yeah. love? Yeah. What my what, first piece what would you tell them? How do you people kind of start with I really like this product and so I think other people will like that product. And I think you need to really um I actually went through this very interesting thing with with a, 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 a very smart corporate finance guy who was trying to get me to describe what the problem was that I was trying to solve. And I couldn't articulate. I was like, it's just kind of cool and people will like it. It's like, no, what is the problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? You got to get to what is the problem you're really trying to solve? Is it a gap? Is it just a gap in the market? And there's an experience that other people don't have. Or are you what emotional thing are you solving? You know, how are you going to emotionally connect with the consumer? You know, tortilla is great. We, we fill a gap in the market. Um, we could do a lot better job connecting with the consumer, but we all seem so bound by cuisine when actually it's not about cuisine. And, it, and it, we shouldn't even be really talking about hospitality. It's consumer experiences and, and bringing together consumer, a, a range of different consumer experiences. Maybe it's work and, um, and, and well-being. Um, maybe it's uh, entertainment and food. Maybe it's entertainment and more entertainment. But creating this thing that that um, solves a problem for consumers, I think, is is really important. And, and, and figuring out what emotional connection you're trying to drive with that consumer that's going to make it really stick. Yeah, have have that clear at the outset. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you it gives you something to drive for as well. It's, it's, you know, I know it's an old old school, isn't it? But you can't get to where you're going to if you don't know where you're going. Yeah, and thinking just thinking outside the box because we, we it's it just all feels very like it's casual dining, it's fast casual, it's fine dining. You know, think about stuff that's more radical. I mean, the stuff that's going on or that went on with Street Feast and London Union was wild. You know, the stuff that's going on if if, if for for people listening, uh, you know, who, who see this that's going on Escape from Freight Island up in Manchester, which is just beyond bonkers. I mean, that place is just insane. My view is there'll be more of those over time. And that's going to hollow out the high street even further because the high street is a disorganized kind of, you know, it, it's based on a capital capitalist structure of you got a bunch of different places and people yeah. releases and you have, you don't have any organization. What, pe- what, what shopping centers did for retail, I think people will start to do for experience. Absolutely. Those will be the destinations of the future. Yeah, it's just easier. Easier. Convenience. Yep. yep. <laughs> come, yeah. come and entertain me. I don't, I don't exactly. want to go anywhere. I'm just going to stand here and you entertain me. What are you going to do to get somebody to get off their couch? Because, I mean, everybody's <laughs> stuck to their couch, right? So it better be good. You know? Oh, God, I hope not, mate. It, it's still, we, we just need to give them treadmills whilst they're out. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Give them fitness. <laughs> yeah, mate, look, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I love chatting to you anyway, mate. But so we got to meet up soon. Get that beer. I would love to, mate. We're well, we're allowed now, aren't we? We are indeed. I've joined the uh, the handshake brigade where where we've we've gone back we've gone back away from fist pumps, and then I'll secretly squeak off and uh, give my hands a quick rub. There'll be a, there'll be hugs soon. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I've, I've read articles about the uh, the downside of not hugging, so we need <laughs> exactly, hugs. exactly. Yeah. Mate, enjoy your weekend, buddy. Really, really enjoy chatting to you, mate. Thanks for having me on. Talk to Take you later. care. Cheers, Brandon. See you, mate.